you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. In the autumn of 1938, a series of attacks began in Halifax, a city in Yorkshire, England. On November 16th of that year, Gertrude Watts and Mary Gledhill were attacked by a mysterious figure as they walked on Old Bank Street. Over the next two weeks, more attacks followed. Both girls and boys were targeted, all slashed with a large blade of some sort. At least two men were attacked and nearly lynched by hysterical townspeople. And then one of the boys who had been attacked, Percy Waddington, came forward with an admission. He had injured himself. Upon further investigation, most of the victims caved and admitted that they had either purposefully injured themselves or had been hurt through some accident. One appeared to have been suicidal and taken advantage of the hysteria to hide the attempt. But this is a story of another kind of slasher. This one, one that did, indeed, exist. This is episode 84, The Phantom Stabber of Bridgeport. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. In previous episodes, I've mentioned a particular type of offender called a PKist. These are individuals with a certain sexual paraphilia, in which the act of stabbing alone gives one a sort of sexual fulfillment. Most recently, it was mentioned in the previous episode, on murders that appeared on the fringes of newspaper discussions of Jack the Ripper. And Jack the Shoe Slasher, from episode 3, might not have been a PKist by the usual definition, although there were likely overtones of it. Many serial killers probably likewise contain elements of PKism. Jack the Ripper's suspect Thomas Hayne Cutbush was most likely a PKist. The notorious London monster, which may or may not have been Renwick Williams, was another. One of the most notorious incidents of PKism in the United States took place in Bridgeport, Connecticut, between 1925 to 1927, or 1928. The mysterious maniac first appeared at about 8 p.m. on the evening of February 20, 1925. Mary Salerno, age 12, was standing near the door of the borough's library at Broad and State Streets. She's often referred to in press accounts as Mary Annunziato, but after some searching on ancestry, which came to be invaluable in this episode, as press reports got nearly everyone's name wrong, which I suppose is an artifact of the 20s and the number of people who have Polish or Italian last names, 
I determined that Annunziata was actually her mother's maiden name, and her last name was actually Salerno. Most accounts indicate that the girl was waiting for a friend who was in the library. As she waited, a man brushed against her, and just as quickly, he ran off. She felt a pain, and putting her hand down towards it, noticed blood on her abdomen. There is a four-inch-long slice in her dress, and a cut of identical size in her belly. The cut required stitches, but was not that deep. According to Salerno, the man who attacked her was probably about 40, had gray hair, and wore a dark suit and hat with a blue necktie. Police looked into it, but nothing really came of it. The attack on Mary Salerno seemed an isolated incident, if a senseless one. A 12-year-old girl, stabbed for no apparent reason. At least she hadn't been seriously injured. But what no one knew at the time was that she was only the first of many, many more to come. It was just over two months later, on April 22nd, that another attack on a young girl came. This time, it was a 14-year-old named Mildred Cook, a native of Queens in New York City. She was visiting relatives in Bridgeport, and as she was walking in what was called the Arcade, essentially a shopping mall, she was stabbed in the breast. When examined at the hospital, a clean stab wound only a quarter of an inch deep and about an inch wide was found. She said that the man, who she only saw as he made his way back into the crowd, was probably in his 30s, somewhere around 5'8", and wore a dark hat and suit, as well as a long black overcoat. The arcade, however, was only a matter of blocks from the library where Salerno had been attacked, and as the descriptions of the assailants more or less matched, I'm sure at least some police suspected the two attacks on young girls were connected. A connection between the attacks was more or less solidified when, on May 18th, another girl was attacked at the library. 14-year-old Elsie Schwartz was stabbed in the stomach around 8.20 p.m., at almost the same spot where Mary Salerno had been stabbed three months previously. Schwartz's attacker was again in his 30s, about 5'8", this time wearing a blue suit and a straw hat. This led to guards being posted at both the library and the arcade to watch for the assailant. After all, he had already struck at the library twice. There was a distinct possibility he would return to the arcade as well. Probably as a result of the police scrutiny in his usual haunts, the stabber next made his appearance a few blocks north, near the high school on Lyon Terrace. The building is the Bridgeport City Hall now. This location was also only a block from the police department and may have been deliberately chosen. The stabber had also lain low for a while. It was now August 22nd. This time, he struck during the day as 12-year-old Edith Zimmerman a native of Philadelphia, who, like Mildred Cook, was visiting relatives in the city, was attacked at 12.30 in the afternoon. She thought the attacker wore a gray suit and a straw hat. He stabbed her in the upper chest and ran off. It was becoming increasingly apparent that the attacks were exceedingly regular. There seemed to be almost exactly a month, give or take a few days, between each one. This makes me wonder about the three-month span between the stabbings of Elsie Schwartz and Edith Zimmerman. I wonder if there weren't two more attacks in the interim that were just never reported. Sure enough, about a month after the incident near the school, 12-year-old Mary Durgo, daughter of Slovakian immigrants, 
was stabbed in the breast by a dark-complected, youngish man near the Taylor Building, which stood at Main and Cannon Streets. This is within sight of the arcade and back in the so-called Phantom Stabber's old stomping grounds. The next attack, on October 26, saw the Stabber return to the library once more. This time, at the John Street entrance to the building, he attacked 11-year-old Dorothy Labar. Dorothy told the police the man who attacked her was in his 30s, thin, wearing a gray suit and hat and glasses. Only three days passed until, on October 29th, Margaret Nelson, 13, was stabbed, this time at Main and Catherine Streets. On November 20th, 16-year-old Jane Alexander was on her way home from work, accompanied by a co-worker, a neighbor named Francis Denzel, also 16. A man stepped out from behind a billboard as they were walking between Catherine Street and Madison Avenue. The man struck at Jane, and she was so startled by this that she fell to the ground. After this, the man ducked back behind the billboard and vanished. Jane didn't even realize at first that she had been stabbed. This is a common feature of most of the cases discussed to this point, and speaks to the speed with which the offender worked. It was usually only after he vanished again that the girl in question even registered that she had been stabbed. In this instance, Jane and Francis made their way to the nearest hospital, and Jane's wound was treated. It was found to be a quarter of an inch deep, and although it was apparently quite painful, it again wasn't all that serious. Only three days later, the stabber surfaced again, this time on the other side of the city. 11-year-old Catherine Dillon was standing out front of 438 Union Avenue in Bridgeport's East End, her grandparents' home, talking to a friend of hers. A man ran from across the street and up to Dillon, threw an arm around her, and stabbed her in the right side. He pushed her into a hedge, and then ran off down the street. By the time Catherine realized she had been stabbed and yelled for her grandfather, who was at the time in the backyard, the man was out of sight. Only about five minutes after this, another 11-year-old named Rose Kerensky was walking home from the library, not the same one where the three girls had already been attacked, obviously, in the company of her brother. She was practically in front of her home at 438 Hollister Avenue when a man ran toward her from the direction of Stratford Avenue to the south. He stabbed her just below the shoulder and then ran back down the street the way he had come. Rose realized she had been stabbed almost right away, and as it happened, her father, Hungarian immigrant John Kerensky, was leaving for work at almost the same moment his daughter was attacked. He gave chase to the stabber, but at Stratford Avenue, he leapt onto a passing trolley car and made his getaway. Both Dylan and Kerensky described the man similarly, about 40, tall, thin, with a dark complexion and wearing a brown coat and hat. Though all the previous descriptions differed, they all seemed fairly consistent in a way, consistent enough to imply that thus far, all the attacks had been made by the same man. After the two November 23rd attacks, police, who had been pursuing the stabber since after the attack on Elsie Schwartz, redoubled their efforts. More detectives were assigned full-time to the case. Although it was generally assumed all the attackers were the same, it was also said that police are not inclined in any way to scoff at the theory that several individuals are responsible for the mystery of the phantom stabber. 
All of the usual suspects, sex offenders, violent criminals, and general oddballs, a census of the eccentrics, newspapers called it, were surveilled and investigated, to no avail. Other nearby cities, Fairfield, Stamford, New Haven, and others, were put on notice as well, should the stabber move to their cities. However, Chief of Detectives John Regan was rather pessimistic about the chances that the stabber would ever be caught, stating, I am afraid that the only possibility of capturing this man will be in the act. From the meager, indefinite, and conflicting descriptions we have received of him, the department has not had much to work on. The victims have in very few of the cases notified us as soon as possible after the attacks. Two hours after the act had been committed, we were informed in some instances. Superintendent of Police Patrick Flanagan was pessimistic for a different reason. He saw in the offender the earmarks of someone who might ramp up and escalate his offenses considerably. Already he had made two leaps, not only committing two attacks within only a few minutes of each other, but with the attack on Jane Alexander a few days before, also beginning to attack girls who weren't alone. As he stated, My only fear is that something fatal will happen before he's caught. One of these days, he'll drive his instrument in so deep that it will strike a vital organ, and there will not only be a fiend at large, but we'll have a murderer to hunt. Police were in possession of the weapon used in one of the attacks. Though it was never specified which of these it was, Mention was made that it was actually stuck in the victim when the stabber made his escape. As Edith Zimmerman was stabbed in the upper chest, a rather bony part of the body, I have suspicions it may have been from this instance. They said it was a rather shoddy all-like device, apparently homemade. This supports the conclusions of some of the doctors who examined the wounded girls, who felt that the weapon used was some sort of narrow blade like a stiletto or an awl. It was also after the so-called double event, the attacks on Dylan and Kerensky, that the story of the stabber first makes its way into the press. There was an effort in a good chunk of the press to run lengthy stories at the time chronicling the actions of the stabber up to that point and implying that the police had ignored the case up to that point. But this, of course, is not really what occurred. They had been looking into the attack since early on in the series. Once the public became aware, however, as should come as no surprise, people became hyper-vigilant, and as was stated, if any man saw a woman or girl act suspicious of him at these times, it would be excuse enough for him to take to his heels. Outright lies, such as that five girls had already been killed by the man, began to circulate as well. The stabber, though, did resurface on December 10th, with what was to be something which had never occurred up to that point an unsuccessful attempt at a stabbing. 16-year-old Alice Driscoll was walking along Myrtle Avenue near the intersection with South Avenue. She was accompanied by her mother, Sarah. A man, clad in a dark coat with a hat pulled down over his face and a white scarf around his neck, lunged from behind a light pole brandishing a knife. Alice reeled back and fell to the ground. Here things get confusing. Some accounts indicate that Sarah saw the knife the attacker wielded, but others indicate that she didn't. She seems to have been undecided on whether this man was the phantom stabber which had terrorized the city for most of 1925 at that point. At any rate, she fought the man, who eventually made his escape. 
and with his attack on Alice Driscoll thwarted, the mysterious phantom laid low. But just as the police had begun to relax their vigilance somewhat, after eight months, he made his reappearance. On August 6, 1926, 13-year-old Mary Corcoran was walking along Lyon Terrace past the high school, at pretty much the exact same place as Edith Zimmerman, in the company of her 10-year-old brother John, when a man approached from the opposite direction. He tipped his hat to two women who were walking ahead of her, and then lunged at Mary. She had thought the man had punched her in the chest, until she returned home, and her mother found a small hole punched in her clothing and a bleeding wound on her chest. Only a week later, on August 13th, he struck again. This time he returned to his old haunts in downtown Bridgeport. 16-year-old Adeline Kinder was at the train station on Water Street, only about a block and a half away from the arcade in the library, with her sister Marjorie. The two girls were inquiring about train tickets to New York. At about 8 o'clock that evening, as near as they could figure, a man came out of the crowd, stabbed Adeline, and mailed it back into the throng of people. Only about 20 minutes later, 26-year-old Anna Borgard, a Dane, and a domestic servant at 2140 Park Avenue, was leaving a hairdresser's shop on Broad Street when a man appeared and stabbed her once in the left lower abdomen. She screamed, and a passing motorist named R.O. Willickson stopped and took her to a hospital once he heard what had happened. 14-year-old Marie Dentato was walking along State Street near the intersection with Warren Street in the company of a friend named Stella Hodkoska. At about 8.45, 25 minutes after Borgard had been stabbed, a man lunged out of the darkness and struck at Dentato, who, like Mary Corcoran, at first thought she had been punched. She soon realized what had actually happened and began to scream as the man ran off. A 23-year-old named Ernest Knoll heard the screams and jumped from his window to give chase to the stabber. However, he became entangled in a vine growing on the outside wall of his house, and he ended up nearly killing himself. When he scrambled back to his feet, he ran after the attacker, but he ducked into a driveway along Warren Street and vanished. Approximately a month later, on September 10th, a Mrs. Michael Gannon was stabbed. But not much information is available about this instance. There are also some references that seem to indicate that at this point, there was another attack with the girl's name never being released by the police. Accounts of the later attack on Isabel Pelsker indicate this took place in Reed's department store. On October 7th, 18-year-old Carmela Charavalli was praying at St. Augustine's Cathedral on Washington Avenue, not far from the high school. As she was entering the church, a man with his hat pulled low over his eyes approached. She held the door open for the man to leave, and in a by now familiar tactic, he bumped into Charavalli, and as he ran off, she realized she had been stabbed. On October 23rd, a 14-year-old girl named Margaret Prusinski was attacked in Reed's department store, immediately next door to the arcade and firmly within the stabber's preferred haunts. Not too much information is available about the attack on Prusinski. Some later accounts refer to an unpublicized attack from October 1926, and as all references to this one come only years later, I wonder whether the two are the same. Finally, on November 31st, 
15-year-old Agnes Pretkevich had disembarked from a streetcar on Middle Street. She was walking south toward John Street when a short man, his collar turned up and his hat pulled low on his face, jumped out from behind a doorway and stabbed her in the right breast. Like so many before, she thought she had only been bumped into until she got home and discovered she was bleeding. The stabbing was only discovered four days later when truant officer William Halpin came to the house to find out why Agnes hadn't been at school for a few days. After a fairly short season, for lack of a better word, the stabber again went underground for a time, not appearing again until the next summer. On July 26, 1927, 16-year-old Selma Ginsburg, who was attending summer classes at the high school, was on her way there at around 7.30 a.m. She said that as she walked down Elm Street, a man who had been looking into a shop window broke away and began to follow her. She began to ascend the stairs leading from the end of Broad Street up a hill to Golden Hill Street when the man overtook her. He stabbed her at the top of the stairs, and upon this, she ran to the high school. As could be expected, the stabber committed his next attack almost exactly a month later. On August 27th, 14-year-old Isabel Pelsker, a girl of Lithuanian extraction who was employed rather than attending school, was leaving Reed's department store next to the arcade. The same store where Margaret Krasinski was attacked months before. While on a staircase leading to the women's dressing room, she was stabbed in the left side just above the kidney. Once again, when examined by a doctor, it was found that the wound was fairly shallow. One of the most documented stabbings took place on September 30th, again almost exactly a month since Pelsker had been stabbed. Another 14-year-old girl, Ruth Stillings, had been at Beardsley Park with another girl named Irene Morgan. Both girls were members of the tennis team at Harding High School and had been practicing. They were leaving the park at around 5.30 p.m. when, as told by Ruth, we were walking down the road out of the park when a young fellow who was about 20 years old rushed out from behind the men's dressing room and bumped into me. I thought he was gonna try to flirt with us, but I wasn't afraid because Irene was with me. But instead, after he bumped into me, he ran around in the front of us and rushed up the hill that goes to Nichols. We thought that something was the matter with him because he didn't apologize or say anything, but just ran over the hill. We continued our walking, and a minute later, I felt a pain. Looking down, I saw blood staining my dress. I started screaming and told Irene that I was stabbed. They ran out of the park to a nearby house. But the woman at the house wasn't really much help, and once she saw the blood and heard the girls yelling about the stabber, she seemed almost ready to pass out. Not getting help there, the girls ran to the house of a girl they knew from school, Florence Nairn, who lived nearby, and there they called the police and a doctor. Stillings provided a fairly good description of the attacker, saying, I didn't get a good look at his face. He wore dark gray trousers, a white shirt, blue sweater with black stripes, and a dark gray cap. He was rather shabby and was very dark-complexioned. Police searched the park and the surrounding area for several hours, but to no avail. And after another lengthy period of inactivity, on December 7th, the stabber struck for what is believed to have been the last time. 18-year-old Estelle Hopler was out shopping that day, and she later described what happened. 
About 5.30, I started walking home, going up Congress Street, and then down the right-hand side of Pequannock Street, carrying several packages. As I reached Vine Street, I noticed what at first appeared to be a little man wearing a heavy brown overcoat, walking slowly about three feet ahead of me, and then slowly walked across. He didn't know when I first saw him, but when I drew up alongside of him, just before I reached Harrow Avenue, he quickly bumped into me and stabbed me. As soon as he stabbed me, I felt a pain, and started screaming, and a man who was walking behind me ran up, looked at me, and must have thought I was crazy, because he shook his head and walked away. Hopler thought this man could have caught the stabber, even though he had run off and disappeared back down Vine Street, but she made her way into the Leverty drugstore to phone the police and a doctor. Bridgeport was long past the point of being fed up. For two years now, this man had been roaming the streets, stabbing young girls seemingly at will, always managing to stay one step ahead of the police. Sure, by sheer luck, none of the girls had been seriously injured, and in fact their injuries were scarcely more than nuisances. But still, one Bridgeport resident, Reverend Edward McKinley of Trinity Church, didn't mince words. The more I think of it, the more incredible it becomes, he said, speaking of the inability to catch the phantom. To think that for two years this stabber has been operating, and that he has obtained 25 victims, and the police confess that they haven't a trace of the man. Immediately after another victim is hurt, the police go out in great force and work 24 hours a day and everything. I'd like to know if they do anything in between times to try to run down the stabber. If I were a Bridgeport policeman, I would be ashamed to wear my uniform. Mayor William Barons wrote to Superintendent Flanagan and said that in his opinion, all leave for police officers for any reason other than illness ought to be canceled, that men be given extra patrols, that all police able to be reassigned should be assigned to the stabber case. Flanagan agreed. The mayor also advocated for the police to try to get the public involved, and they had been trying this. It just seemed that in general, the public wasn't really much help. Given the time period, I can't help but wonder whether the fact that the majority of the stabbed girls had been of foreign origin had something to do with that. Only four days after these guidelines were proposed and put into practice, Superintendent Patrick Flanagan died of a heart attack on December 13, 1927. Reading the same newspapers as everyone else, the stabber, possibly intimidated by this response and the fact that Estelle Hopler's quick realization that she had been stabbed led to him being likely closer to being caught than he ever had been, vanished as surely as he had after each attack but this time, he would not reappear. These attacks constitute the most commonly accepted victims of the Bridgeport Stabber. Throughout the time period covered by the above 23 appearances, there were a number of other stabbings and woundings in Bridgeport that were apparently copycat attacks. With the entry of the story into the public eye with the attacks on Catherine Dillon and Rose Kerensky, came the first fabricated or at any rate highly suspect, attack. Emory Horn, the 14-year-old son of wealthy Bridgeport resident Ernest Horn, returned to his home on the evening of November 27, 1925, displaying a bleeding wound on his hand. He said that as he was walking on Wayne Street between Savoy and Westfield Streets, a man jumped from the bushes of a vacant lot and brandished a knife at him. 
As Horn docked to avoid the attack, he was hit in the hand. Then the man ran off. While the press seized on another Phantom Stabber event, the police remained skeptical. Horn was the right age, but the Stabber had always targeted girls, not boys. Emery could give absolutely no description of the attacker either. And when they discovered that before leaving the house, he had told the family that he would probably be attacked by the Phantom, they were tempted to dismiss the entire affair. Then there were others that were often assumed to be the work of a notorious figure, but which, after investigation, the police either didn't believe were committed by the same person, or could outright prove that they weren't. 18-year-old Charlotte Masseau left her home at 161 Clinton Avenue on January 6, 1927, to go to a nearby drugstore. As she did so, she noticed a man in a brown coat and hat nearby. Returning to the house ten minutes later, she found the man still there, now standing on the sidewalk directly out front of the house. As she walked past him, he grabbed her and, she said, stabbed her in the face three times. She was soon found by her younger sister Irene, who ran and got their father Frederick, who helped his daughter back into the house and summoned the police. As they investigated, however, they were struck by a few differences. Not only was the location of Masso's house far removed from any of his previous attacks, he had hitherto always stabbed the girls in the chest. The wounds themselves, also, seemed inconsistent with stabs, and looked more similar to scratches. It was thought they may have been the result of fingernails. Police received a report on December 11, 1927, that Zilla Hutchinson, a 57-year-old woman, had been stabbed in a Park Avenue theater on November 7th, fully a month before. Interestingly, the disclosure had first been made to a Bridgeport Telegram reporter, rather than the police. She thought she had been stuck with a pin in her clothing, went to the bathroom to check, and not finding a pin, returned to her seat. When she got home, she discovered two small wounds, one on her chest and one on her elbow. Neither of the wounds bled but Hutchinson was far older than the typical victim of the Phantom Stabber. The wound seemed far smaller, likely she wasn't wrong when she thought she had been jabbed with a pin, and even less serious than the Stabber's wounds. It was generally assumed based on this that it was not the work of the same man, if indeed it was anything intentional at all. At about 6.30pm on the foggy evening of December 30th, 1927, Mrs. Charles Hinman, 39, left her house in Blackrock, bound for the offices of Dr. J.H. Beaudry. Mrs. Hinman had been recently been released from the hospital. She was walking along Cortland Avenue, approaching Fairfield Avenue, when she saw a man approaching her. As she described the events, As he came up to me, he said, You will squeal on me, will you? Well, take that. And he slashed me across the breast. I immediately felt a sharp, biting pain, but before I could collect my senses, he had already run up Cortland Avenue, and all I saw of him was a faint moving object disappearing into the mist. Mrs. Hinman said the man was only about 5'2 and stocky, with dark pants and a hat pulled down over his face. She ran into a grocery store nearby and called the police. While there, the others in the store noticed that her chest was bleeding badly, and she seems to have passed out as she didn't seem really clear on what happened after that. 
Her wound was a large, deep gash that required several stitches and was easily the most severe injury inflicted thus far. Positively, it was not the work of a stabber, said new superintendent of police Charles Wheeler, who had, who had taken over for the recently deceased Flanagan. He cited the fact that the attacker had addressed Mrs. Hinman before the attack. Its geographical location was far outside the typical haunts of the stabber, and it was a completely different sort of injury. Finally, at about 6.45 a.m. on the morning of May 31, 1928, a 24-year-old woman named Anna Rock was attacked while on her way to work. On Colorado Avenue, she was accosted by a knife-wielding man who emerged from behind a hedge. The man tried to stab her in the left side, but due to the way she was holding her purse, ended up stabbing her in the arm instead. After being stabbed, she made her way to a nearby house, where a doctor was called. Police, however, thought this might have been a hoax attack. Investigating Rock's past, they found she had falsified reports of several previous attacks as well. They also talked to a neighborhood man who had been a witness to Rock walking down the street near where she claimed to have been attacked. There was no other man in the vicinity, he said. A number of stabbing attacks also surfaced from other Connecticut cities. Again, these were sometimes assumed to be the same offender, though the nature of the wounds was usually different, and these were most likely copycat crimes. The most notable of these was active in Hartford in December 1927 and January 1928. On December 20, 1927, 19-year-old Bertha Talmadge was walking home from a store at about 9.30 p.m., when she was approached by a man in Benton Street. She tried to weave around him several times, but he kept cutting her off. Suddenly, he ran at her, stabbed her, then turned and ran back the way he had come. He may have stabbed her more than once. Some of her other clothing was punctured, and some scratches were found on her chest as well. The Talmadge account, however, was not released to the public until after the next account. On January 3, 1928, Eleanor Olson, aged 28, was walking along Henry Street near the intersection with Grandview Avenue. As she crossed the street, a man rushed at her and stabbed her. He ran down Grandview Avenue. Olson screamed and gave chase to her attacker, who actually ran through Mrs. Olson's yard and hurtled over a fence. The chase was soon joined by John Sullivan and Robert Truman. Despite the three pursuers, the stabber escaped into a wooded area. Finally, on January 24th, 17-year-old Mabel Bowyer, in the company of two other girls, was walking on New Britain Avenue. A young man stalked toward the three girls, pushed his way between Mabel's two friends, and stabbed her in the chest. After that, he withdrew and fled northward toward Trinity College. In February, several women reported being approached by a suspicious-looking young man. Police responded to a complaint from one of these women and apprehended a 17-year-old boy named Lorenzo de Marais. Bertha Talmadge, Eleanor Olson, and Mabel Bowyer all identified de Marais as the man who had attacked him. After it came out that a suspect in the stabbings had been apprehended, there was obviously an attempt made to con connect de Marais to the Bridgeport Phantom Stabber attacks as well. This proved futile, though, as he was living in Massachusetts at the time that the Phantom Stabber attacked Mary Salerno. Lorenzo did refer to the Bridgeport stabber several times, though, 
as he said it was his aim to rival that mystery man's exploits. On other occasions, he claimed that he was friends with a stabber, and that the Bridgeport stabber had told him he should start attacks in Hartford as well. He was eventually committed to the Middletown State Hospital in Connecticut, before it was decided that as a native of Massachusetts, he should probably be sent to that state. He was sent to Worcester State Hospital in Massachusetts. On March 20, 1929, Lorenzo de Marais escaped the mental hospital, along with another inmate named John Dean. He managed to avoid authorities for several months, but in November of that year, he was recaptured in Nashua, New Hampshire. His whereabouts from the time of his escape to his recapture were unknown. Some sources tried to connect Lorenzo to the Bridgeport stabbings for years afterward, although this link had been proven false shortly after his arrest. Likewise, a number of sources refer to his still being a fugitive even years after he had actually been recaptured and sent back to the hospital. He was eventually released, although I'm uncertain as to when. He joined the army in 1940, and at that time was living back in Hartford. Several other suspects have been apprehended over the years. The first was arrested about a week before the attack on Alice Driscoll. On December 2, 1925, a Bridgeport man named Frank Perry was apprehended, initially on a, of attempting to assault a girl in the Bijou Theater. Perry had a reputation as a peeping Tom, and while being tried the next day, police began to suspect they should question him in the stabber case. While he was found guilty of the attempted assault in the theater, none of the stabber victims could identify him, and he was cleared in that regard. In July 1926, a man named Joseph Baroni was arrested for stabbing a girl in Hartford. Baroni was a former resident of Bridgeport, and furthermore it was found that while he was resident there, he had worked as a shoemaker. Shoemakers would, of course, utilize awls in their work and it was just such a weapon thought to have inflicted the wounds on the girls. Baroni had been a resident of the eastern part of the city, nearest the locations where Catherine Dillon and Rose Kerensky were attacked. Nothing ever came of an attempt to try to connect him to the Bridgeport case, however, and he was sent back to Hartford. January of 1927 saw the arrest of a 55-year-old man named Joseph Lefevre. Catherine Fitzpatrick, a school principal, was talking with another woman at Broad and Cannon Streets. A man walking nearby muttered something about women blocking the street and punched Fitzpatrick in the face. He then walked into the arcade where Mildred Cook had been assaulted two years before. Lefevre was identified as the man, although he said he had been drinking with a friend for the first time in five years and couldn't remember whether he had done it. There was never any sort of suspicion of him being the stabber, or any accusation of this. There was, however, a persistent rumor that he was, given that he was arrested in the stabber's main haunts. About a week and a half after the attack on Estelle Hobbler in December 1927, a man named Edward Williams was arrested in Stamford, Connecticut. Although arrested initially for attempting to sell stolen goods, Detective Paul Hayes thought he resembled the descriptions of the Bridgeport stabber, and he had in his possession at the time of his arrest a large pin which could inflict similar wounds. In fact, when arrested, he was also in possession with a great number of newspaper clippings, 
many of which detailed the actions of the Bridgeport Stabber. However, it came out that these clippings were a result of attitudes he held toward women and their attackers. He felt that any man who did injury to a woman should be put to death, and that no woman should be, regardless of any crime she was found to have committed. In regards to the Bridgeport case in particular, he said he felt it would have been right for the police to lock up every man in Bridgeport so long as the attack stopped. In the end, Williams couldn't be identified by any of the girls attacked in Bridgeport, and he was released as well. To this day, the case of the Bridgeport Phantom Stabber remains unsolved. It is still unknown whether he was, in fact, associated with any of the other stabbing series in the other Connecticut cities, which in addition to Lorenzo de Marais' activities in Hartford, also included some in Danbury in 1929, thought to be the work of 20-year-old Anthony Gigliotti, and ones in Derby as well as Ansonia, both just north of Bridgeport and Southington. I'm going to do a Freedom of Information Act request to see if the Bridgeport police have any files or anything left from the Stabber investigation. Some of the stories I looked at seem to allude to things happening behind the scenes that I don't necessarily know about. For example, a statement that John Regan was generally assumed to have stalled the case. I'll let everyone know if I find anything new. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. Photos associated with the episode will, as always, be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.